favorite time of the week, Wednesday night, Revelation study. And we've had amazing visions of heaven, creatures and elders and jewels and rainbows and everything. And, and that ain't tonight is all I got to tell you. Okay, so be ready. We are in the opening of the first six seals out of the seven seals that will be opened. And if you ever want to know, is it worth it to walk out the Christian faith? I think you'll never say that it's not worth it again after tonight. So uh, let's open in prayer. And then I'll start with a reminder of where we left off. And then we will get in to this rather short chapter but there's some stuff to uh, go through in it and we will cover that as best as we can. Let's pray together. Our Father, in Jesus' name we come to you. And Lord, as, um, I pray uh, my mind would just slow down a little bit. I pray that your word, Lord, would just get clearer and clearer, even in this apocalyptic book with many, many symbols. Lord, we pray that we would rightly divide the word of truth and that we would be visited by you today in a way that is instructive, Lord, and edifying and encouraging, Lord, that we know that you are our God, and we know you as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God, we rest in that tonight, and we look forward to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, we dedicate this, this time to you. Amen. Okay. So... The scene is shifting now from heaven to earth. So we're shifting from heaven to earth. Um, as I said, we saw those beautiful, beautiful images of, of heaven. We saw that uh, the place of centrality, which is the throne of God, is highlighted by four creatures surrounding that throne, followed by 24 elders surrounding those four creatures, highlighting the centrality of the throne and the one who sits upon that throne. And with the one who sits upon that throne, last chapter we were given his right hand, his hand of power. And there's something in that right hand that's because of all the centrality that we've been shown, that right hand has something in it that becomes the cent of central importance in the entire universe at this time. Okay, there's nothing more highlighted than this scroll in the right hand of God in the last chapter. So a strong angel appears and asks the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Now it's a strong angel because if somebody unworthy shows up to take that scroll and to loose its seals, he'll be unable to because it's under the authority of the strong angel. So who is going to be this anticipated being that has worthiness to begin the events of end times? What kind of authority must he have to usher in the end times um, with his authority here? So who must this be? Well, nobody answers the call to open these seals. And that makes John weep that he was told in chapter four, you'll be shown all these things. And now in chapter five, we need somebody worthy to reveal these events to us, and nobody is found worthy in heaven. No angelic being or anybody like that. On earth, no Billy Grahams or Popes or St. Augustines or anybody, or under the earth, people that have passed away or so forth, or 
whoever they may be. Nobody is found worthy to open these seals. So, so John weeps. And as John is weeping, an elder says, do not weep. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has been found worthy to open these seals. So John says, I turn to look at this lion, but guess what he sees? A lamb. So this begins some paradoxes that need to be settled. He's told about a lion, he turns and he gets a lamb. So we need a being who is both aptly described as the lion and the lamb to fit this text. And then the paradoxes continue because it says this lamb was standing as if slain. Now, how can we reconcile a slain lamb standing? Well, the only answer to that is one of my favorite words that has ever been uttered, and I'm sure it's one of your favorite words as well. It's the word resurrection. Resurrection is required to have something slain standing. So here's the resurrected Christ bearing his wounds in heaven, standing victoriously, uh, worthy to open the scrolls, and it says, for you were slain. Those four words carry massive impact. Worthiness does not come by birth. Worthiness does not come by wealth. Worthiness does not come by prestige or class rank or any of those things. The worthiness of the Lamb of God, make him more worthy than anybody that's ever lived, is the fact that he was slain. And we went through Isaiah 52 and 53 last week to show the details of that slain. And I hope that helped you to appreciate the word worthy is what made him worthy to open these, the scroll and lucid seals. Now, this is the chapter, chapter six, where we see the effects of him opening these seals. So as we see the events that are about to unfold, I want you to keep a couple things in mind. First thing I want you to keep in mind that it's Jesus loosing these seals because there's going to be chaos that ensues, but this chaos is not beyond the purview of the Lamb of God, is it? It's not like he opens the seals and now he loses control. He opens the seals demonstrating his control over everything we're about to witness. Everything we're about to witness is under the direct authority of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, second thing I want you to understand is this. Try to find two scholarly commentaries on this chapter and many chapters that follow that completely agree with one another on how to interpret these seals, because I would like to see it. So what we're going to do is only allow scripture to interpret scripture, and we're going to let the Bible speak for itself on these things. Okay, so as we uh, continue on, the judgments that are about to unfold are seen in two different ways in scholarship. One way is that the first six seals represent the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. So one of the major ways of interpreting this chapter is that this will be the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. And those three and a half years, Jesus referred to as a time of sorrows the time of sorrows in Matthew 24. Then when we get to the seventh seal in a couple chapters, that will re represent the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. 
And that's what Jesus referred to as the Great Tribulation. So we have the time of sorrows, and we have the Great Tribulation. According to this way of understanding, the first six seals will be the first three and a half years. The final seal will be the last three and a half years. Another way scholars understand this is simply this. The first seal is the first three and a half years, and the final six seals after that are the last three and a half years. So when I get through the first seal, I'll explain that, why, why folks would believe that. Now, chapter 6, verse 1. Oh, wait, very important detail. These folks all seem to agree that the entirety of the seven seals is indeed Daniel's 70th week that he prophesies about in, in chapter 9 of Daniel um, and we're going to get into that in just a, a few minutes, chapter 9 of Daniel. But they do see the seven seals as that 70th week. So we'll keep that in mind as well. All right, verse 1, chapter 6. John says, remember, we just finished this eruption of worship. Remember when he, when he takes the, the scroll, the 24 elders and the four creatures break out in worship, followed by 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands break out in worship followed by every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea breaking out in worship. So we have this explosion of worship that just happened. And now chapter six starts with the word now, in the midst of that worship, here's what happens. Now I saw the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. Now, a likely reference to a voice like thunder would be storms are coming, right? Isn't that how you would understand thunder? Storms are coming, all right? So this voice like thunder would indicate storms are on their way and these storms will be um, the events of tribulation. So he says, come and see, verse two, and I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. All right, so one of the things I hope to be able to display to you tonight is this. There's a wonderful correlation between this chapter and Matthew chapter 24. So you may want to keep a finger or two at Matthew 24 as well as Revelation chapter 6 here. So for this first seal that has this fiery red horse coming out, I'm sorry, that has this white horse coming out, and he has a bow in his hand, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering to conquer. I refer you to Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, where Jesus says this. It says, And Jesus said to them, Take heed, that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and deceive many. Now, this is the idea of false Christ coming into the world. So the idea of this rider on the white horse, first of all, what it does not represent, as some suggested, is that it's Jesus Christ. Now, why would they think that this one's Jesus Christ? Well, because in about 13 more chapters, you're going to see Jesus on a white horse. But he's not given a crown. He has on his head many crowns. So it's different. 
He doesn't have a bow in his hand. A bow represents warfare from a distance. You shoot from a distance and conduct warfare long range with those bows. Jesus has in his mouth a sword. That's for short range, immediate combat. Much more um, nation to nation type, go to war, soldier to soldier type of warfare. So this is not to be confused with Jesus, the vision of Jesus on the white horse that will encounter, uh, gosh, I would say in a couple months uh, when we get to those uh, chapters there. Now, so who would this be? Well, instead of being Christ, it is largely believed that this would be Antichrist, not opposed to your uncle Christ, Antichrist, but this is the A-N-T-I Christ. Wow, is that a lot of head no shakes there? Okay, that's being scratched from future teachings. All right. <laughs> okay, I'm embarrassed and I don't know where to go or what to do. All right, so we'll push forward. So this is the Antichrist, the capital A Antichrist. I feel I owe you an apology, but I'm going to keep going forward. The capital A Antichrist. Now, what is he doing, though? It says he's going out to conquer and to conquer. Now, the belief of the Antichrist, at least in the first three and a half years, which would support that this is the first three and a half years and why some people think only this seal represents the first three and a half years, is because he is conquering the way Rome conquered to create world peace. Remember, when Rome was in charge of the world, there was something called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And because of their great intimidation of the rest of the world, the rest of the world kind of fell in line under Roman occupation, and there was this global peace because of that. So Antichrist is going to do something similar to that and bring about this false sense of security to the world uh, through peace treaties and so forth. So he goes out to conquer and to conquer, creating the sense of peace, as we believe the Antichrist will do. So that would be the first horse there. This is the four horsemen of the apocalypse is what we're encountering here. This is horse number one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, so the bow is typical of long-range warfare here. Horses are typically symbolized providential movements of God. When God's moving providentially and, and a prophet is given a vision of that, as you see in Zechariah chapter 1, there's this vision of these red horses moving forth and Zechariah is told that God is moving to and fro in the earth to see where peace is and things like that in, in Zechariah's vision there. So horses are typical for providential movements of God. White horses are typical of the rider is victorious in battle. So Caesar is famous for <clears throat> coming back from battles where he conquers territory and he rides back into Rome being pulled by white steeds. And the, when you saw the white horses coming, that was a sign that he was victorious in battle. So the white is victory. Uh, the horse is, is, is a movement of gods. And um, so what we would have here is he sets out to conquer and there will be a time period of that peace that he's out to obtain, even if it's through warfare. All right. As I said, this one opposed to Jesus in the vision of the white horse has a singular crown where Jesus has many in Revelation 19.12. And, uh, and you saw the correlation in Jesus' Olivet Discourse with Matthew 24 verses, four and five, 24 verses 4 and 5. So 
I wrote as a possible conclusion here to this first seal is that this rider is supposed to represent the last ditch effort of mankind to bring peace into a world apart from God and apart from the Holy Spirit. Okay, the rapture of the church has happened. There's no Holy Spirit on the planet. And now mankind is trying to bring peace to the world through this conquering and, and so forth, where you'd have this one uh, ruler bringing peace to the world. Does that work? Well, let's look at the next verses. Verse three says, when he, being Jesus Christ, opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out and was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. So now, we do not have peace on the earth. So the people that believe the first seal is the first three and a half years now say that peace is over after three and a half years. Here comes the second seal and it's global warfare with the sword, not the bow. So we see this described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you want to join me there. 1 Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of this time in the first three verses where he says, but the coming, I'm sorry, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. All right, so those that are appointed to wrath are going to experience the wrath of the fiery red horse and its rider. This would uh, be the uh, sword would give you the, the, the nation to nation or face to face bloody warfare, brother against brother. So this would include the entirety of family infighting, neighborhood clashes, civil unrest, national and international wars. And we see Jesus in the same order as these horsemen are given to us. We see Jesus in Matthew 24, verses six and the first part of seven, say it this way. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So see that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom okay so right after jesus tells us about warning us about false christ like the antichrist he then talks about wars and rumors of wars with the fiery red horse and nation rising against nation and kingdom rising against kingdom <clears throat> this is the second seal now the third seal Verses five and six says, when he, Jesus Christ, and I just wanna remind you, when it keeps saying, when he, when he, when he, what's that reminding you of? He's in control. He has the authority. He's the one opening the seals. He's actually approving of what's happening here. And we'll talk more about that in a few, few minutes. So the third seal we get, it says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. 
So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarters of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, I also see scholarship differing on what's happening here, but here's my faithful effort to share what the Bible says about this. Now, what would naturally occur after a global war is global famine. War not only destroys property and resources, it also, before, uh, after it destroys so many of them, it also utilizes tons of it for the massive armies and so forth. So there's scarcity of food and of natural resources. So <clears throat> where it says a quart, that is in some translations um, mentioned as a measure, and a quart or a measure would be a daily provision of food. So this is speaking of massive amounts of inflation. Some scholars estimate this to be 800% inflation rate. Okay, that's happening here. And, and it says a quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius is equivalent to a day's wage. So you will get enough wheat for a meal by working all day long. So, you're, so never mind housing, shelter, security, medical, or anything like that. Just to get a meal of wheat, you got to work all day for it. And you'll get three quarts of barley for the same price. So you get three barley meals for working an entire day. That is, is the inflation that's happening here. And it says, but do not harm the oil or the wine. The oil and the wine are to be protected because these are the foods of the rich. So we see that the accessibility of the food to the poor, the barley and the wheat, has massive amounts of inflation attached to it. And then you see the food of the rich, the luxurious, is to be protected. And the idea there is the complete unfairness and the lack of compassion that goes on in a world without the Holy Spirit. Now, other scholars would say this is not protecting the food of the rich as much as it is God always leaves some sort of remnant and some sort of provision for others. You know, in the midst of judgment, there's always some mercy shown. Now, uh, when we get to the next, uh, when we get down to the fifth and sixth seal, I think there's reason to say that that wouldn't be right in this season of judgment, um, but it may very well be the complete unfairness of a political system that um, just entered us into global warfare, create, creating this tremendous famine, and therefore inflation rates go crazy, but the ungodliness of the leadership uh, protects themselves, that their oils and their wines are protected from that inflation rate. So this corresponds in the Olivet Discourse of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 with the second half of verse 7. Notice the order of the four horsemen is going the same order that Jesus says things will happen. And in 24, 7, part B, Jesus says, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. 
says all of these are the beginning of sorrows. So there's your first half of the tribulation that Jesus uh, identifies as the beginning of sorrows. All right, that leads us to our next seal, our fourth seal, and this is the fourth, fourth and final of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So the fourth seal reads, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. Now, quick side note. You see the pattern of these, there's, there's four uh, living creatures that are introduced in Revelation, and each one of them introduces one of these four horsemen of the apocalypse. So we see a pattern established there. Another pattern that we see established is that John hears the voices of these living creatures, and they all say the same thing, come and see. Now, why is that significant and important? Because it's establishing a pattern. So we can witness a pattern happening here. These four living creatures are taking turns announcing each of these four, four horsemen of the apocalypse and with the same verbiage, that's a pattern. Now, how does that play out for God's people to, to notice patterns like this? Well, one of the most controversial and confusing books of the entire Bible would certainly be the book of Job. And people wonder in chapter one of the book of Job, as Job hears that his property is destroyed, and while that messenger is still speaking, he hears that his animals are destroyed, and while that speaker is still speaking, he hears that his children are killed. And the Bible says after he gets word that he is now broke and childless, that how in the world does that chapter end by saying Job worshipped? He worshipped. And in all of these things, he did not sin. Well, one of the great indications of Job's understanding of these tragic, tragic events happening to him is that as this foreign uh, people like Sabians come and do these awful things to Job. It says that they did these things uh, to his property or to his animals and then to his, uh, the, the weather did it to his children. Well, here's what Job kept hearing over and over again. The messenger would say, and I alone escaped to tell you. Next one, and I alone escape to tell you. Next one, and I alone escape to tell you. There's an established pattern that's presented to Job. Job recognizes the pattern and knows that you cannot have pattern without a pattern maker. Patterns do not come from randomness. You cannot have randomness create a pattern. So the pattern means there's a pattern maker that's responsible for what's going on Therefore, he worshiped. He saw the hand of the Lord in the pattern. Now, I don't know how that'll play out for you and your understanding of the events of your life, but one reason I can stand here and say with certainty against supposed good science that evolution is false is because there's way too much pattern in nature, in biology, in creation to possibly account it to randomness. Pattern means pattern maker. So what do we have with these four 
creatures announcing these four horsemen of the apocalypse, you are given a clear pattern. The chaos of, of war and famine and pestilence and cosmic disturbances that are going to follow, you would look at all of that. Now, you'll be in heaven looking down at it, right? But we're to see the pattern and know that this is the hand of God. Verses 7 and 8. The fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. There's your pattern. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Now this color pale is the word um, claros, which we get our word chlorine from. And it speaks of a pale yellow uh, color of decay. In fact, I think I gave you a quote here um, on this color. And uh, Robert Thomas describes this color as the yellowish green of decay, the pallor of death. It is the pale ashen color that images a face bleached because of terror. It recalls a corpse in the advanced stage of corruption. That's the color of this horse that we're looking at here. All right. So he opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. Now that's not a name we often give our babies, right? So this is a unique, um, this is a unique horseman named death and Hades followed. Now that just might be poetic in the sense that what always follows death, the grave, right? Death, the grave follows death. So here, it's Hades is following death. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So now we get multiple riders, multiple ways of dying in this death in Hades. Now, Remember, John did not write this apocalypse by chapter or by verse. This is one flowing letter for him. He didn't do the chapters or the verses. So a little earlier than this, he had mentioned death in Hades already. And how did he mention death in Hades already? He said he saw Jesus Christ in all of his, his splendor, talking to the seven churches and to one of the churches, he said, behold, I have the keys to death in Hades. I have the authority over death and Hades. So who is the master of the riders of this pale horse? Jesus Christ, your savior, okay? He has the keys of death and Hades. Now, here's three views that include how these wild beasts would kill as they're part of uh, all of this death. Three different views of these wild beasts. On one hand, it said these are actual wild beasts becoming ferocious due to the famine and the lack of food. So therefore, they're now taking anything they can eat, including people, and they become part of the plague of death. Others think that the animals resent political and military leaders, since its Greek word is terion, used 38 times in Revelation, referring to the Antichrist or the false prophet. So the same word is often used to refer to the Antichrist or the false prophet, which are the rulers of the political military systems of end times. So these political leaders might be the wild beasts that are helping to destroy and kill and so forth. And a third opinion on how these wild beasts participate 
as it refers to pandemics that relate to the animal world, such as swine flu and bird flu and AIDS and Ebola and all of those things. So all of them are bad and all of them result in death one way or the other. Um, but those are people's opinions on the wild beasts of the earth there. So um, this correlates now to Jesus also in 24-7b um, that I gave you last time, which concludes the, the time of sorrows that Jesus talks about. So um, there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginnings of sorrows of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Okay, Ezekiel 14, 12, and the verses following that, Old Testament passage that speaks into this a bit. It says in Ezekiel 14, 12, about this time and event. It says, the word of the Lord came again to me, saying, son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, that's the charge, persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Here's a second side note for you. Do you know that Noah and Job are two of the most attack characters in the Old Testament as far as their historic reality? A lot of people don't believe in a global flood and a boat filled with two of every kind of animal. They find it cartoonish. Well, God doesn't. He here says the reality of Noah and Job as well as Daniel are in the fact that I consider them three of the most righteous men ever uh, to use as my example to my prophet Ezekiel here. Now, if you think Ezekiel's not a big enough prophet to give credibility to the reality of Noah and Job, I would ask you this, is Jesus a big enough prophet for you to consider that credible, his testimony? Because when Jesus talks about something as important as end times, he says this, it'll be just like the days of Noah, when the people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage when suddenly the flood came upon them. So Jesus puts all of the credibility of his second coming on what people think is a fictional character named Noah. But Jesus finds him so credible that he, he bases the credibility of his second coming on him. Now, Jonah's not listed here, but Jonah's another pretty attacked one, isn't he? It's hard to believe a man was swallowed up by a great fish. <clears throat> In fact, we had a second grader who um, I heard about at a local school who um, was learning the anatomy of a fish when the teacher made some sort of comment about, you can see here how a man can never be swallowed by a fish, to which this faithful, faithful second grader said, no, I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish, to which the teacher said, no, he couldn't have been, and the little boy said, no, I think he was. I'll ask Jonah when I get to heaven, to which the teacher said, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And the boy said, well, then you ask him. Ah, that one you laughed a little more at. Okay, good. You do have a sense of humor out there. Very good. All right. 
<laughs> I'll stop now. So, G is Jonah, does Jesus give Jonah credibility? Well, do you think Jesus' third day resurrection is an important event in his life? Well, all of the credibility of his third day resurrection he puts on Jonah. He says, the only sign I will give you is that just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus Christ was a firm believer in Jonah and in Noah, and God the Father is a firm believer in Noah and of Job, and if they don't question him, and how dare any of us question him. All right, back on track again. Here we go. So here we have a quarter of the world's population will perish from these disasters. Current estimate about the world's population today is it's about 8 billion people. So this would result in the death of 2 billion people. This would be an extremely major event. Now, there's approximately 2 billion Christians on the earth, so if they're all raptured from the 8 billion, that leaves 6 billion, and a quarter of that would be 1.5 billion. Still be 1.5 billion people killed in this, these disasters. That's unprecedented. So, scholars will take these seals, mainly 2 through 4, to be the great tribulation of the last three and a half years of the seven-year time of Daniel's 70th week. Okay, and as I said, some take the first three and a half years to be the first seal. Some take all six of these to be um, the last three and a half years. So there's differences on these uh, time periods here. So these, this time period is mentioned also in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. So you can turn with me there. I'm only going to read the one verse, so um, you can join me there if you'd like. It says, at that time, Michael, this is the archangel Michael, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Okay, it's very familiar language from Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Okay, now, that talks about a delivering of people from that time. So who would they be if the church is in heaven? Well, I think the best answer to that would be you're going to see that there is going to be the salvation of Jews that happens during this tribulation period, and it would be referring to them. Okay, now, Jeremiah 30, uh, verse 7, it says, Alas, for the, that, great, that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, for he shall be saved out of it. So there's the idea of Jacob's trouble. Jacob will refer to the Jews, and there's Jews that will be saved out of that. We'll come across them uh, a bit later. All right. Now, Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. There we read. Blow the trumpet in Zion. And sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess. We're going to see that shortly. A day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will ever there ever be any such after them. 
even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. All right. Um, this is the fourth and final uh, horseman of the apocalypse, but that's just four of the six seals that we're covering tonight. So now we're going to get into the fifth seal, but before we do get into the fifth seal, we're going to encounter martyrs um, and their souls up there under the altar in heaven. And before we talk about them, I just want to give what Stephen Hawking calls a brief history of time, which means I'm going to cover the progress of mankind from beginning to where we're going here. So this is going to kind of be um, a 30,000 foot shot of the Bible here. Now, as we know, we start with Adam. And when God deals with Adam and his offspring from Genesis 2 up to Genesis 6, whatever the population of the world is up to that point, God's been dealing with all of them as a group. And what's the end result? Genesis 6 says, all their thoughts were only evil continuously. So here comes the flood. The flood ends in Genesis chapter 9. So in Genesis chapter 9, Noah is given the same commands as Adam to be fruitful, multiply, and start all over again. And, by the, and then in Genesis chapter 10, we actually get a record of them becoming 70 nations. We get a table of nations, and there's 70 of them in the next chapter. Chapter after that, we come across the Tower of Babel. Whereas God continues to deal with mankind as a whole, Babel shows they're still in rebellion against God. As they're commanded to spread out across the whole earth, they say, no, we're staying here, we're building this tower up to heaven, and we're not spreading out. So God confuses the language, forcing them to, to travel in packs where they actually understand each other and spread out to their own communities uh, um, according to how God wanted them. So now we're through the first 11 chapters of the Bible as God dealt with all of humanity as a whole, and it's nothing but major rebellion. So he gets a different idea, a different strategy in, in chapter 12, where he takes one man, Abraham, to form one nation of all, all the nations of the earth, Israel. He makes these promises to Abraham based on obedience to him and to his seed forever. And so he works with Abraham in building a nation. And I see in the notes, I put Abraham before Noah. Sorry for that little chronological uh, blip. But Abraham uh, is to build a nation that God promises blessings to this nation such that as he sets them apart as holy and he gives them the Levitical law and he gives them a priesthood and the Levitical law to follow, that through that obedience, they're going to become a very blessed nation. And as they receive the blessings of God in this nation, that's actually how God's going to reach all the other nations. As these other nations see the blessedness of Israel, they're going to say their God's the true God, and they're going to come into covenant with the true God is the plan. So just as the Levites become the priests of Israel, the nation of Israel becomes the priests of the other nations. 
And that's pretty much the entire Old Testament covenant, covenant except for the fact that they're found rebellious to that throughout. So then God does another plan where he says, where my people can't follow this law, I will send my son and in his perfection, he will perfectly follow this law and he will fulfill it for them. And then he'll die for their sins and their rebellion. And I'll credit the righteousness of my son to those who come to me in faith. And I will, I will put the sin of those who come to me in faith upon my son. And there'll be this great exchange and the people can be saved. And even then, Jesus gets crucified. He gets crucified even through that plan. And Jesus gives a great lament over Jerusalem, 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 how I long to gather you as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So they go from global plans through Adam and Adam and Noah, those fail. He goes through a national plan through Abraham for Israel, that fails. And then he sends his son, and of course to all who believe, absolute success, but he is rejected as Isaiah would say, despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief uh, is what he becomes. Now, in that, before Jesus comes, of course, we get this exile to Assyria and Babylon, northern kingdom and southern kingdom get exiled to those two locations. As you see in Nehemiah chapter two, there will be a call to rebuild Jerusalem after the second exile there. And that is gonna set forth that call to rebuild is gonna set forth the prophetic timeline that we're given in Daniel chapter nine. So this would be the appropriate time to turn our attention to Daniel chapter nine and see the words of this prophetic timeline unfold. I'll begin in verse 20. Daniel 9, 20 is where I'll begin. It says, now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment went out and I've come to tell you for you are greatly beloved. Therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now therefore, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. 
until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So now, this is one of the greatest detailed prophecies of the Old Testament. It's one of the, I would think, the hardest to overcome if you're going to question the validity of Christianity. Because we are given a prophetic timeline here. From the going forth of the announcement to rebuild Jerusalem, which you can read about in Nehemiah chapter 2. The, the announcement to go rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah uh, chapter 2, which is around March of 444 B.C. Now, from that time forward, we are given this pro uh, program of seven weeks to rebuild. Now, these are not days of weeks. These are years of weeks. So the weeks are, seven weeks will be um, 49 years. Okay, so one week would be seven years instead of seven days. So seven weeks would be 49 years. So they have 49 years to rebuild. And at the completion of that, another 62 weeks will go by uh, of seven-year periods. Now, at the end of that, 69 weeks, comes in a 70th week where we're told about Antichrist coming, Messiah being cut off, and, and all of that. So, as we're in Revelation 6 right now, and we're getting six seals given to us, the seventh seal is not going to come for a couple more chapters. There's going to be a pause and a delay. And that is the understanding of the time period we're living in now, is in this parentheses, they call it. Okay, before the 70th and final week kicks in, which will be the week of tribulation. So, so Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24, verses 8 and 9, where I told you about the beginning of sorrows he mentioned in the next verse he talks about the tribulation beginning so with this now fifth seal what do we encounter verse 9 it says when he opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of god and for the testimony which they held and they cried with a loud voice saying how long o lord holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now, who are these souls? What age do they belong to? Well, we do not believe that they belong to the church age for the simple reason that what are they crying out for? Crying out for vengeance, correct? Vengeance is not, is not the re response of the age that we're living in. We live in the age of grace, don't we? We live in the age of grace. But the age of grace was not in the Old Covenant. It's not the Old Testament. It was not the age of grace. Nor is it in the tribulation, the age of grace. Those are both periods of judgment. So there are books of the Bible that may have troubled your soul 
because you live in the age of grace and you're reading literature that comes from an age of judgment. And when you read of the judgments of the old covenant, it can trouble your soul because you're not, you're, you're not experiencing that. You're experiencing an age of grace. So there are psalms that are called imprecatory psalms. And they're hard to read because a psalmist is like begging God for this tremendous wrathful judgment upon their enemies. And then you're going, Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. But Jesus came in the new covenant. Jesus taught us that in the new covenant. So without reading a lot of details of imprecatory psalms, I gave you two of them that you can read for yourself, Psalm 69 and 109. And there are others you can certainly look up for yourselves. I just want to show you a sample of how my favorite psalm, or one of my favorite psalms, breaks out into an imprecatory psalm all of a sudden. And I want you to see why, because of the age that's going on here. Okay, So, these martyred souls under the altar in this section of Revelation 6 that we're studying are crying out for vengeance of their murderers. Jesus cried out for forgiveness to his murderers, didn't he? So it's showing you these different ages that were lived in. The Old Testament relates to the tribulation age. We live in this age of grace. So in Psalm 139, it's nicely divided. These 24 verses of Psalm 139 is nicely divided into four sections of six verses each. And they all celebrate some attribute of God, which I'm not going to get into tonight. But with all of this celebration of God's attributes and who God is, that David is overwhelmed with this love of God, suddenly in verse 19 he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And don't I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. So David is filled with hatred of people who hate God and he rises up and says, let's just kill him. Let's just kill them all. Remember James and John uh, being mad at the Samaritans saying, God, let's rain down fire from heaven and just kill them all. Okay, it's typical of that age. Okay, it's typical of tribulation that a sin is met with judgment. Okay, your sins you bring to God and you confess them and you're met with grace, correct? It's great to be alive today, isn't it? It's great to be alive in this age. All right? But this is why these martyrs now are not of the church age. The church has been raptured. So these martyred souls must be the Jews that have gotten saved after the rapture. And the Bible says that when they get saved after the rapture, that they'll be beheaded for their testimony. So these would be those martyred souls up there now immediately crying out in this dispensation of judgment again that there's vengeance taken upon their killers is what we read there. So 1 Thessalonians 1 seems to be Paul's expression of this, this uh, scene here. First, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are bound, verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith 
in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be kind of worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. So you kind of see that's the Revelation 6 picture. Is there going to be repaid with tribulation those who trouble you and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels? Isn't that exactly the word of Revelation 6? Rest a little while longer. Okay. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Isn't that a powerful word, belief? It literally separates the two experiences of eternal paradise and eternal uh, condemnation. So it's the word believe. And that's the power of what Jesus brings to us is the whole Old Testament is filled with efforts to obey the law and it just can't be done. So now Jesus can do that and now it's just a matter of belief. Amen and hallelujah to that. All right, let's wrap this up. Sixth seal. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as, sack, as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now, first of all, there's a lot to interpret here, isn't there? Okay, so people are figuring out this sun is black as sackcloth, the moon like blood, the stars are falling from heaven. And that type of comic disturbance would pretty much kill everybody. Okay, that type of cosmic disturbance would leave no survivors. So this, even by the literalists that we are with the book of Revelation, this is understood symbolically. Um, these cosmic events, we have to say, what does the Old Testament teach us to understand the events of the sun and the moon and the stars being so cosmically disturbed, uh, what would that mean to us? I personally believe the best place to go is to Genesis with this and to look at this dream that Joseph had early in his childhood. Joseph has a dream that he tells his brothers who then tell their father he said, my dream was that the sun and the moon and the stars all bowed down to me. Now, Jacob interprets that dream this way. He's saying, are you saying that me and your mother and your brothers are going to all bow down to you? So Jacob sees the interpretation of the dream as he is the sun, his wife is the moon, 
and his brothers are the stars. And to Joseph, who's the youngest at this time, that would mean all of his authority, all of his authority figures are going to have this reversal of they're going to bow to him when he should be bowing to them. Okay? So with that Old Testament interpretation of these symbols now applied to the New Testament book of Revelation, we would see the consistency of the involvement of political and military leaders now falling under possibly one ruler. So you've heard of all the talk of one world government. And if there's one world government, what happened to all the other world governments? Fallen. They've fallen. So this would be a picture of the sun and moon, the stars being our authorities all falling. Now some see this as being exactly what Rome did back then. They had all of these political and military systems fall under them. And as much prophecy in the Bible works in an already fulfillment with a not yet fulfillment, the already fulfillment shows the people present in that day that this is a true prophet because we saw this part of the prophecy come true and the not yet fulfillment is for generations later. Okay, that's how a lot of Bible prophecy works in this already not yet way. So the Joseph dream being fulfilled will be the already prophecy when you get to the end of Genesis is in a beautiful picture in Egypt when Joseph's brothers realize who he is and they all bow down to him in the fulfillment of that dream. And by the way, and I'm sure I'll mention this in a few months, if you're still with me in a few months, at the end of Revelation, when we get a picture of the New Jerusalem, you're going to see these gates in the New Jerusalem, in this beautiful picture, this beautiful city, north gates, south gates, east gates, west gates, and there's um, the names of the 12 tribes on these gates, uh, three on each of the four, so it's a picture of the 12 tribes in a circle. And when's the last time we saw the 12 tribes in a circle like that? Well, the first, we see it at the end of Genesis with the brothers all hugging Joseph. They get in a big circle and they hug and they cry and they're reunited and it's wonderful. And as you back up from that scene and you tune into the New Jerusalem, you see those same brothers uh, forming the gates of the New Jerusalem. Uh, it's kind of a wonderful preview uh, of that. And you also see around the tabernacle and the wilderness wanderings, God tells them to set up camps in a circular fashion around the tabernacle. It's another picture of the brothers surrounded like that. So it's kind of a really cool thing to notice. So we have sung many a hymn and we have celebrated in many a prayer this idea of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now you see a bit of a different picture. You see a picture of the wrath of the lamb. Now, it's kind of hard to draw a coloring book with a lamb that invokes fear into people and so forth. It's quite a paradox, isn't it? Having this wrath of a lamb, you almost would think, listen, I got an angry lamb coming at me. I'll be able to handle that just fine. That'll be no big deal, okay? Not this lamb. This is the wrath of the Lamb of God. And Jesus Christ tells us himself about it in John chapter 3, where he says, 
I'll start in verse 35. He says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. So with all things in Jesus's hand, what does he say next? He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now that word abides sounds so harmless, but unfortunately abides is a word of constancy that you will constantly have this wrath upon you for eternity. Um, he who does not believe in the son. How significant is Jesus Christ as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and belief in him? There is an eternal weight of wrath of God on the head of everybody who does not believe in a real and authentic way. Now that's not somebody's opinion, that's from the mouth of the lamb himself. So um, thankful for a TV full of people that are believers in the lamb and also are communicators to the rest of the world about the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, that we live in that age of love and of grace, but that age does not extend forever. There'll be a time of judgment. So let us be a witness and a testimony. Let us be the light of the world. Let us be the salt of the earth. Let us be everything that's true and authentic of Jesus Christ living in us so that we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and enjoy the presence of those who through our witness and testimony are not experiencing the wrath of the Lamb, but the beauty and the grace of his sacrifice for them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we come to you, Lord, and we are not worthy to receive the benefits of your death on that cross. But Lord, you seem to be led by this incredible love, this divine love that exceeds all human love. And we seem to be the objects of it, Lord, and we haven't done a thing to be in that great, great position but it's your perfect choice. And so Lord, we receive it with great humility and great thanksgiving. For you are worthy, Lord, of all of the worship in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea. And we wanna participate in that worship and not have to wait, Lord, until we see you. But from this night and forevermore, may our hearts be in constant worship of you who died for us. And we pray this in your holy and your precious name. And we all said, Amen. The question is referring to the 12 elders that were made up of the 12 tribes of Judah and the 12 apostles. Does that include Judas or is he replaced by Paul or something else? No, it would not include Judas. And although I would very instinctively uh, would want to agree that that would be Paul that is replacing him there because Paul is such an amazing apostle. And, and to me, honestly, I think the most significant apostle, um, that's not who was voted in to replace Judas. It was Matthias uh, gets the vote there. And um, although they uh, draw straws or, or however the way they, they came about choosing uh, Matthias, um, you just don't hear from him again, but boy, do you hear from the Apostle Paul. So it seems, it seems technically true that Matthias would be the 12th, but it seems more common sense true that it would be Paul. So I, I can't answer for sure uh, who the 12th would be 
in the context that you are asking the question. Uh, it's either Matthias or Paul, but I would say it's certainly not Judas. Revelation 7, next week.